and welcome to ONS Energy Talks. My name is Anne Blomberg, and together with my guests here today, we want to address several current topics on the energy agenda. Today, we'll have a closer look at geopolitical implications on the energy transition. Together with me in studio to discuss this is uh, Dr. Tatiana Mitrova, who is a research fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. She has 25 years of experience in dealing with Russian and global energy markets. Welcome, Tatiana. Thank you. And next to me is also Eric Varnas, uh, SVP and Chief Economist in Equinor. For 12 years in a row, he has been responsible for energy perspectives and independent energy scenario analysis prepared annually in macroeconomics, energy markets and geopolitics. Welcome also to you, Eric. Thank you very much. So, Tatiana, as a start, let's have a look at the Russian-Ukrainian war. We're now getting close to two years since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This also means that the embargo on Russian petroleum products and strict sanctions have been long-lasting. What implications and consequences do you see of the sanctions at this time? You know, surprisingly, the implications for the Russian economy itself were not that impressive. Though we have embargo on Russian coal, coal, Russian oil, Russian oil products, actually Russian revenues from oil and gas... They've decreased. Uh, They are lower now, uh, like two times compared to 2022, but they are still higher than they used to be in 2016, in 2020, which means that it is acceptable level for the Russian leadership. Russia is uh, rising its shadow fleet. Russian oil companies proved to be extremely smart in finding different bypasses, in building up intermediary chains, in uh, processing these hidden transactions, really creative in finding the new markets. And actually, the volumes of the Russian uh, energy exports, they've decreased uh, dramatically for natural gas, But it was like Russia's own decision. It was not due to the sanctions. But when it comes to oil and oil products, uh, they uh, have not changed that much. So uh, the economy is stable. Actually, this year, GDP growth projection for Russia is about 3%, which is really higher than for many European countries. Uh, The oil and gas industries are functioning in a quite stable way. The revenues are there. Uh, The drilling is ongoing. All the processes are in place. So basically, the idea of punishing Russia or the idea to obtain reduction of Russian military power in order to limit its aggression in Ukraine, it doesn't work so far. At the same time, there are several important implications for the rest of the world. Because uh, the global oil market and the global gas market, they saw a massive uh, redirection of the flows. 
It was very painful uh, for the gas market in 2022 with the sudden disruption of pipeline gas supplies to Europe and European countries struggling to find the new sources of supply, switching to LNG from all over the world, and sometimes actually getting this LNG, which was initially um, designed to go to the poorest countries in Asia. Um, It also resulted in a massive redirection of the oil flows. Now most of Russian oil ends up in Asia, in China, in India, um, sometimes in the Middle East, in Turkey, while Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern economies, uh, they are increasing their supplies uh, in Europe, replacing Russian oil. And here uh, we saw a fantastic uh, collaboration inside OPEC+. Plus. Yeah, this coordination game, which actually allowed both OPEC countries and Russia to sustain their revenues to uh, fix an acceptable price level, and they keep doing it. And this is also quite a new picture uh, for the global oil market. It started in 2020, but it didn't crash with the war in Ukraine. It didn't crash with the sanctions. It actually became even stronger, uh, this uh, joint game. Then we see also that um, actually the share of the shadow trade, uh, the share of the oil uh, transactions under the sanctions, uh, it is increasing, uh, and there is a whole new ecosystem evolving with these um, shadow fleets, uh, with the uh, insurance companies uh, like no-name uh, financial um, institutions uh, hidden somewhere in the offshore areas. So part of the oil market is actually becoming invisible significant part of the transactions is not transparent. We do not even know the prices. We can only guess and make some estimations. And this fragmentation of the oil market, which I believe will be followed by similar sort of fragmentation of the gas market, it is something really important for the global energy trade. On one hand, it proved to be extremely resilient, even when the largest one, yeah, probably in total Russia was the largest energy exporter in the world, got sanctioned. Nevertheless, the markets managed to rebalance and to keep rather stable. But at the same time, uh, this fragmentation and uh, growing part going into the shadow it's something completely opposite to the previous long-term trend of globalization and transparency. So this new, uh, what's like called geopolitical en- uh, environment for for energy markets, but then also the energy transition that you're explaining. Can you explain, you know, going from Russia, what else do you see? Well, uh, Russia has probably catalyzed uh, some processes which were already. Uh, being prepared long before uh, this division between uh, the West, let's say, and uh, the global South, or better to say, uh, developing countries which feel dissatisfied with the way how the world economic system is organized, which are not uh, completely happy with the path of energy transition that the West is declaring, or which are are actually uh, quite critical regarding the um, rules of the game, the financial flows, the transfer of technologies and many other things. 
Russia uh, is now um, actually trying to make a sort of alliance of all those dissatisfied. It's not an alliance in favor of something. It's rather an alliance against against the existing global order. And uh, we see that um, enlargement of BRICS, for example, is a good example, uh, and many countries are supporting it. Um, the whole uh, discussion uh, at uh, COP, you can see many signs of that. Uh, the uh, events in Africa, in the Middle East, in South America, both from the geopolitical perspective, but also from the business perspective, this movement of non-aligned, uh, it is becoming a new, a very significant force. It's not organized yet. It hasn't declared uh, its interests very clearly. But at the same time, it can sabotage many of the activities of the West, and we can also see many examples of that, unfortunately. No, regarding uh, what Tatiana is explaining here, Eric, this new uh, geopolitical environment uh, for the energy transition, I'd very much like to bring in your perspectives. Now, in the energy perspective you're heading up, there are two scenarios, one called walls and one called bridges. And they illustrate two very different pathways for the global energy system towards 2050. Can you shortly explain these two scenarios? Yeah, both of them describe an energy transition uh, in terms of changing the the links between global GDP growth and and the use of energy and and also uh, carbon emissions. So in in both of them, the world becomes greener and uh, more energy efficient, but uh, at very, very different speeds. Uh, the wall scenario builds on the assumption that uh, that the world is in a geopolitically very tense situation. Um, it has been for quite a while, uh, and of course that has increased over the last years with with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, with the souring uh, relationship between the United States and China, and now with the ongoing war in the Middle East. So in that scenario, that's why it's called walls. We assume that uh, that we will uh, we will have a world where we protect our own interests. Uh, we have populist uh, politicians winning elections in different countries, uh, protecting your own uh, electorate rather than thinking globally. Uh, we have uh, sanctions on global trade. We have sanctions on technology uh, exchange, etc., etc. That will slow down uh, the ability to handle collective issues in a collectively efficient manner, such as climate change. It will slow down economic growth, uh, and it will lead to to conflicts deciding where you want to source your uh, supplies, whether where you want to source your energy. Uh, we're talking about re-globalization, maybe not deglobalization, but re-globalization, which increases uh, the cost of trade. Uh, globally, it will slow down the energy transition in many places, but you will also see a speed up of the energy transition, for instance, in Europe, due to the lack of Russian gas. So it has to be, it has to be, you have to do something about it. And then one, one of the things you do is you, you speed up the investments in your own energy, which is basically renewables to some extent in, or in Europe. The bridges scenario is, uh, is based on a completely different assumption on, on geopolitics. We think, and that's a scenario which by design arrives at the one and a half degree type of world. We stay within the one and a half degree warming by 2050. It's a normative backcast. We look at what is needed to get there. Uh, it's, very, very unlikely. It's not a probable scenario, but it is what is needed. And it just needs much more of the energy transition developments that we see in the WALS scenario. The WALS is our forecast, Bridges is a normative backcast. 
And it's a massive revolution in the global energy systems. And one of the key assumptions that we have is that if we are to have any hope of getting towards that type of development in terms of the changes needed, uh, we have to eliminate basically all kinds of geopolitical conflicts because we have to walk in tandem. We have to cooperate. As examples, uh, we have to exchange technologies. Uh, we have to use uh, the one-ninth of the global landmass, which is Russia, to look for carbon sinks, for instance, to get negative emissions. Uh, in, in addition to all the minerals that we need in energy transition. Uh, one, of, one of the problems with the current geopolitical situation is that, uh, that Russia is taken out of that type of equation in terms of, in terms of mineral extraction, uranium, whatever it is, right? in addition to the oil and gas, of course. So that's so two very different scenarios, and uh, and both of them energy transition type of scenarios where we will we'll change the link between emissions and energy use, but not sufficiently fast in the world scenario. And from what you just described, uh, Eric, uh, you know, right at this moment, which uh, scenario do you think we're closest to today? Well, definitely we're in the in the walls type of scenario. If the development right now, the development actually goes uh, goes in that direction, uh, it does for the next couple of years, and then uh, and and in some in some respects, it's even worse than what we describe in the wall scenario, uh, both in terms of of the the, the recessions that are taking place uh, going on in Europe, as an example. Uh, that's in in the wall scenario. We assume do we do assume positive economic growth mainly mainly in all over the world, and and of course uh, currently that's not the case. But but so the types of geopolitical conflict. Uh, of course, we don't assume uh, to have wars all over the place all the time. But but you are have periods with those types of conflicts, and that's where we're in now. And uh, so then, in three four years, you know, we could hope for something else. We can also fear something which is even worse, uh, both in terms of the speed of development and in terms of emission uh, developments. But uh, but if we're to believe in the bridges scenario, something have to, have to change really, really rapidly. Uh, Tatiana, uh, listening into what uh, Eric said here, what uh, what is your view? Uh, you know, uh, when we are looking at the current situation, I've mentioned this three percent GDP growth in Russia. You know what is driving this growth? Military sector. So the more the world is spending for the military equipment production for militarization as a whole the less we are spending on energy transition. And this is a problem because we need much more money, much more investments in the implementation and scaling up of the new energy technologies. And instead, we are building bombs. Of course, at the end of the game, as the example of uh, all wars uh, is showing, there will be some technological advancement uh, produced by the military uh, sector. You know, these dual purpose technologies and everything. But I, I, I do not think that it will help in switching from uh, bridges, from walls to bridges uh, scenario. And this is really very sad because we are losing the time. And people are dying. So uh, it doesn't look like a, a sustainable model for, for the humankind. I think also that uh, as, as we in the West uh, and in the large powers now are, are focused on these geopolitical conflicts and tensions and we don't want to cooperate with the Chinese uh, as much as we want. We don't want to depend on them as much as we have for our global supply chains. All that takes away also the focus from uh, how, how to solve the problem of energy access among the poor in the world while addressing climate change at the same time. 
And, and that is basically, an, uh, it's an almost an impossible proposition to, to do something about the massive differences in income and the ma- massive differences in access to energy uh, across the world and at the same time address uh, the need for emission reductions. Because the global energy system is still depending on 80% of 80% dependent on fossil fuels. So any kind of income increase among, among the poor will lead to higher energy demand there. And then how do we how do we square that circle with at the same time reducing emissions? And and we're not focused on that because we're focusing on, on a lot of other stuff where we don't trust each other, we sanction, you know, we who who's gonna dominate the mineral extraction in Africa if we don't the Chinese are currently doing that. But if we don't accept that as a model, how do we do that? So, so we're focused on a lot of issues that are not conducive to driving the change in the right direction. Really, it's a typical game theory with the prisoner's dilemma yeah, and uh, with the non-cooperative uh, behavior. Yeah, I completely agree. We cannot uh, win this battle with the climate change, which is the biggest battle uh, for the whole civilization. And uh, when I was mentioning these fragmented markets, actually, I, I want to go a, little, a, a bit deeper there. Uh, Russia's new value proposition for the developing world is, guys, we will bring you cheap and abundant fossil fuel energy. There will be plenty of oil, plenty of gas, we will deliver it, and uh, we are even ready to uh, invest and build uh, processing, build gas-fired generation, for example, for the gas that we are planning to supply. So uh, providing the whole supply chain for the countries which are really struggling with energy deficit. And it's not only countries with, uh, without uh, energy access. These are uh, countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh with uh, uh, blackouts and problems with supplies and many other climate problems, actually. But what they need urgently is cheap, affordable, reliable energy supply. And uh, actually, Russia, which is now looking for the new markets for its gas, first of all, LNG, it is switching more from pipeline gas to LNG supplies. Um, For its uh, nuclear leadership, actually, Rosatom is building more uh, nuclear power plants in the world than any other company these days. And they are looking at the expansion And uh, these countries, uh, developing countries in Southeast Asia, in Africa, are like natural partners. So in this situation, uh, the view from the West, which is uh, trying to limit this Russian expansion, is perceived in the global South like, guys, you want to leave us without energy. After everything you've done with the climate, now you prohibit us to have energy access, which is only raising these tensions and confrontation. Yeah, and no, one of the ethical dilemmas and, and also climate paradoxes of what happened last year as Europe scrambled to get more LNG to replace the Russian gas that disappeared, right, was that Europe bought all of the free LNG in the world, brought that to Europe, took away the possibilities of, of LNG exports from the United States and Qatar to countries like Pakistan and Bangladesh, who otherwise would have bought it. And the consequence of that was that they had to revert to coal. So global emissions went up as a consequence of Europe trying to scramble and avoid the most most expensive consequences of the of the lack of gas. So it's uh, so the world is full of paradoxes and dilemmas, and we're not cooperating at the global level. And that's what we have to do in order to have any chance of at least a you know a structured approach 
to addressing climate change. Uh, Eric, you just said now that, you know, we need uh, what we need, uh, both for uh, for the energy transition to go forward, for people to have access to energy for a just transition. We need uh, international cooperation. So what do you think that, uh, what kind of impact can uh, uh, negotiations like COP28 have on the speed of the energy transition? Well, it's... Uh there are fundamental conflicts of interest among the people that are discussing these issues at those types of conference, and therefore it's difficult to find solutions that everybody is happy with. But of course, there's there's a lot of good things happening. Uh, there's a lot of good solutions being presented. The world is moving in the right direction in terms of reducing the emission intensity of our energy use. The challenge is, of course, that we as, as the economy grows, as we become more people, we need more energy as well. And therefore, we're dissatisfied with with the fact that it's not going fast enough. But we should at least avoid uh, having the, the best become the enemy of the good. Uh, there are, There's a lot of good in- initiatives. The, the methane declaration that started COP, uh, the last COP negotiations is one example where oil and gas producers t- start taking the methane leak- leakages seriously, which is one example. There's a lot of things happening on the EV side, on, on the, the, the lighting side and so on. But, there, but of course, there's a lot of other challenges as well. But we are moving in the right direction. It's just that the, the, the speed is, uh, is not fast enough for, for us to arrive at the one and a half degree scenario. I completely agree with this uh, um, definition. And, you know, for me, uh, COP is a place of declarations. And it's very important that these official declarations and commitments are made. It doesn't guarantee that they will be all implemented, as we saw from the examples of the previous COPs. But at least they, uh, the commitments are made. The very fact that uh, in um, uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, the oil and gas industry was probably for the first time, frankly, included in this discussion because for many years it was like away from this uh, COP uh, conversation. It is a very important step because, as Eric mentioned, so far 80% of global energy is coming from oil and gas and excluding oil and gas from decarbonization discussion doesn't help at all. So it is an important step and uh, it also you could see uh, lots of initiatives and projects presented by the oil and gas industry at COP. Also, as a part of this transitioning, it incentivized, it, it pushed them to go forward. At the same time, um, with all these uh, big declarations and big commitments, uh, what is missing to my understanding are small steps which should become part of our everyday life around the whole world. So such boring stuff as energy efficiency, for example, which doesn't uh, sound as attractive as green hydrogen, but which has to be done. It should be in place and um, it is the lowest hanging and the cheapest fruit in the table. So bringing together this gap between the uh, technologies in the research labs and large scale projects on the ground, building the financial flows from the commercial financial institutions to the commercial companies. So making this scale up exercise uh, after the declarations are announced by the governments. So this part which is behind COP, but it is uh, equally or even more important than just declarations. 
And uh, on that uh, positive uh, note, we will conclude this episode of ONS Energy Talks. Thank you so much, Tatjana Mitrova and Erik Vernes, uh, for sharing your perspectives and also helping us understand the effect geopolitics have on the speed of the energy transition. Uh, this topic will be high on the agenda at ONS. In the meantime, to keep you updated, I encourage you to follow us on LinkedIn. Go to www.ons.no to tune into more ONS Energy Talks podcasts. My name is Anne Blomberg. Thank you for listening.